sorry, go ahead. <laughs> in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we'll continue with our hymn of the month. Come thou long expected Jesus with the alternate two. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, Raise us to thy glorious throne. All right, we'll continue with uh, the Bible memory work and catechism, which is uh, from Table of Duties, and this is the final Table of Duties uh, addressed to everyone. From Romans 13:9. The commandments are summed up in this one rule: love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13:9. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer, I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. Right. You're off the hook this morning. My kids are sick. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, uh, no Sunday school today.
Do you have another one? Yeah, they're outside. They're in the yeah, right there. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. All right, so um, new hymn of the month this this month. Obviously, it's December now. Uh, came came quick. It did. Doesn't seem like it was that long ago that it was like you know July, but um, <laughs> but December is here, and uh, we have an Advent hymn. Come that long expected Jesus. We're also like I said, singing this on Wednesday nights. Um, a nice little short hymn. And uh, like hymns we've done in the past, uh, one thing to note about this off the bat is that this is a prayer, right? So this is a hymn that you can pray. It's addressed to Jesus. Um, Come is a a command, right? Uh, It's an imperative. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. We're telling uh, thou is you, right, Um, in in the King James English. We're telling Jesus to come. Um, which is the point of Advent, that Jesus comes to us, uh, as we talked about last Sunday sermon, he comes to us in his incarnation, in his first Advent. Um, he comes to us now in his word and sacraments, and he comes to us again um, on the final day for the last judgment. So uh, this is a prayer that we can pray. Um, so we're going to be praying this, singing this throughout Advent. Um, the other thing I want to just point out today that part of the um, poetry in this hymn that I really like is the constant refrain of born, that Jesus is born for a purpose and, and, and is destined for certain things, right? So when Jesus is born, he takes on human flesh, and that has, has consequences, right? Um, he's the long expected. He's been, we've been waiting for this to happen. And what are all these reasons that he's born? What, what's the purpose of his being born? Uh, first, to set his people free. Um, and then in the second stanza, born thy people to deliver, to set thy people free, to deliver thy people. Born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Uh, so he's born for all these reasons, right? He's born to deliver us and to be our king. Um in the, uh, in the Bible, sometimes we'll talk about the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Uh, those are the three offices that Christ holds, right? And as prophet, uh, he gives us his word. As priest, he's, he makes the atonement for our sins. And as king, he rules over our lives, right? And you can see that here. He's born for the, these purposes. Um, he's born to be our prophet, priest, and king. So uh, I just wanted to point those things out in the hymn. There's other things that we can talk about um, in the coming weeks here, but I think it's a a really nice little short and beautiful hymn for the Advent season. It's by Charles Wesley, um, who's – Charles Wesley is a Methodist, uh, obviously uh, one of the two Wesley brothers – Charles wrote all the hymns. Um, who's the other one? Uh, Charles and uh, Samuel. Yeah, Samuel Wesley. Uh, Samuel Wesley was the theologian. He wrote more. Charles wrote all the hymns, so we have a lot of Charles Wesley hymns in our hymnal. He was a good hymn writer. W e s l e y. He also uh, wrote "Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending." I'm pretty sure. 
which is our hymn of the day today. Yeah, I see a lot of uh, Wesley House foundations across campuses. Yeah, Wesley House is their the United Methodist Campus Ministry, okay. so it's named after. Um, unfortunately, Samuel and Charles Wesley were much better theologians than United Methodists tend to be. Today. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, United Methodists have have been more or less liberalized. It depends on where you are in the country. Um, there's a massive split going on right now in the in the Methodist Church. So, uh, but anyway, the the hymn Charles Wesley's hymnody is is generally pretty good, um, despite not us we don't agree with everything in Wesleyan theology per se, but his hymn his hymns are are generally pretty biblically based. So, anyhow, all right. Uh, in the uh, catechism memory work today, we, we have the final table of duties. So Luther goes through all of the different uh, table, all the different vocations that someone could have, right, and gives these Bible verses. So we add um, to husbands and wives, to children, to um, employers, to employees, to what what are all the other ones we had? We had servants. Yeah, well, to ser yeah, to servants and masters, and to um, we had, we had all sorts of different uh to oh to pastors and to um to mem to hearers of pastors or members of the church. Uh, so he goes through all these different duties that people may have in their life and gives Bible verses for them, and then he ends. He concludes with this one where he just says to everyone. Um, and gives this Bible verse, Romans 13:9, which is actually a little bit longer than we have here. Uh, in so Romans 13:9 actually reads, I'll just read read the whole thing. It lists a variety of commandments in that little dot 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 there. So for the commandments, and then he lists a couple of different of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying. Namely, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so you can see there how Luther gets away with just putting a dot, 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 because Paul's point in that verse is that all commandments are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. So all the commandments... Especially the, the second table of the law, we would say. Um, so if you think about the Ten Commandments, the starting with the Fourth Commandment, um, you have uh, honor your father and your mother. And then from there on out, it's all commandments concerning the love of neighbor. So the first three commandments are concerning the love of God. The second, uh, the rest of the commandments, the next seven commandments are concerning the love of neighbor. And Paul's point here is that all those commandments uh, can be summed up in this, what we've often called uh, the golden rule, right? And this is the same thing Jesus does when someone asks him what are the two greatest commandments. He says, uh, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the point about summarizing the law or summarizing the commandments is this. Is that on one hand you're uh, you're summarizing, right? So you're making something that could be very broad, 
something that could be multitude uh, a multitude of different things. So if you look in the Old Testament, um, right there's there's tons of laws, tons of commandments uh, that and and throughout the Bible even in, in the New Testament too. There's lots of different ways we can talk about how to love your neighbor. Um, very minute things like. For instance, Paul's advice in 1 Corinthians to, that Christians uh, shouldn't take one another to court and sue one another, right? Well, that, that's a commandment uh, about loving your neighbor. However, we can take all those commandments, right? The Ten Commandments plus all the other commandments in the Bible and with, that have to do with loving your neighbor, and we can summarize them. Uh, with this, love your neighbor as yourself. So in one way, you're getting smaller, right? You're making things more narrow. It's you're you're getting it down just to one one piece of information. However, by doing that, you're also what Paul and Jesus and and the Bible is is doing here. What God's word is doing here is it's making these things more broad in their application, right? So um, the danger of having the multitude of all the commandments like you had in the Old Testament is Phariseeism. That the, what, what the Pharisees do, they took all the laws in the Old Testament, all the, all the little tiny laws, and they said, you know, say, don't eat shellfish, Um and they said, look, we fulfilled the law because we took we, we had our checklist of things and we checked them all off. And and now we fulfilled the law. When Jesus says the law can be summed up with love your neighbor as yourself, what he's doing is he's broadening the law. He's broadening the application of law, even though he's narrowing it in one sense down to one thing. He's also broadening it. Because love, as, as Paul says here, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is something a lot broader than something that you can check off the list. Right. So I, I always kind of give this example for whatever reason. Um, the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Just because a child cleans his room when he's told doesn't mean he's checked that off the box and that he's done everything he can do to fulfill that commandment, right? To love your father and your mother, to fulfill that commandment with love, that entails a whole lifestyle, a whole way of being with your relationship with your parents. And not just your parents, but other authorities, right? Because that... Uh, commandment expands out when you start to think of it in terms of love. That it's not just about um, your father and your mother, but it's about all the relationships which God has put you in that have a uh, relationship of authority and submission. And so whenever Jesus says, and whenever we, we sum up the commandments like this, love your neighbor as yourself, it doesn't allow anyone to escape. <laughs> right, uh, so that it does condemn us all because none of us has been able to perfectly love our neighbor as ourselves. 
On the other hand, it also gives us a bigger and better way to to fulfill God's commands, right? It gives us a, a more options to to love. So the question is not ever what can I get away with, right? What's the minimum amount I can do to fulfill these commandments? Um, but when we look at different commandments, so and going back into the table of duties, so uh, when when we had, um, I'll just use myself as an example. When it, whenever it had to pastors, and um, the verses about uh, what the requirements of a pastor are, um, those things aren't things I should treat as just a checklist. And and just uh, you know say oh I uh, I've decided that I'm a- I'm apt to teach and I never have to worry about being apt to teach ever again in my life I've checked that off the box uh, no as a pastor when I say okay the Bible tells me as a pastor I'm supposed to be apt to teach and it tells me then also to love my neighbor as myself and in and in teaching my congregation. That's a act of love. Then I should strive to continue to grow in my teaching ability and to be the best teacher that I can be, right? And not just to to become kind of stagnant and um, just kind of you know uh, not plan Bible study and just riff off the top of my head. And I mean I do that enough anyway, but um, kind of you know just not really care about about the, the quality of the teaching and so on and so forth, um, right? I'm supposed to, to love as, as much as my sinful pride, you know, wants to love myself and wants to serve me, I should instead try and love my neighbors with that much kind of, with that, with that uh, kind of love. And so that involves trying to love as deeply and as broadly as possible, if that makes sense. So that, I think that's why Luther sums up, he says to everyone, um, take all these things that you've been given to do, and now don't ask the question, okay, what can I just get away with? What's the minimum I have to do? But approach these things with the concept of love, the loving more, loving the best way I can, so on and so forth. All right, any questions on that? Okay, what's the first sentence you said there? Love is the fulfillment of Love is the fulfillment of the law. Yeah, that's that's Romans thirteen ten. That's the next verse. Yeah. Um, any other questions? Okay. So uh, with that we'll pick back up with Abijam slash Abijah. So uh, we we already kind of went through uh, we we already kind of went through First Kings fifteen one through eight and looked at uh, Abijam's life. So he takes over from his father Rehoboam as king of Judah, and uh, he does not take down any of the pagan idols or shrines that have been established in Judah. However, he does give this long speech in 2 Chronicles 13 about uh, their neighbors to the north, Israel. And 
he condemns Israel for all of their idolatry. And the things he says about Israel uh, are not wrong. He, he says things that are correct about Israel that they've done uh, against God's commandment. And he appeals uh, particularly to an idea we've talked about many times from 2 Samuel 7, that Judah is the tribe, um, the line of David. Judah is the tribe that the Messiah is going to come from, that the Messiah is going to come from the line of David, that God's going to establish this eternal kingdom through David. And Abijam says, uh, appeals to this in 2 Corinthians 13 and says, Look, we're the chosen people. You got, and he's talking to Israel. He says, you know, you left us. You you went astray. You went and uh, started worshiping other gods. We're still we're still the tribe of Judah. We're still the tribe of David. Uh, God's gonna um, save the world through us. Now, what he says there is all true, but it's. A half-truth in this way is that he's completely ignoring what is going on in his own land, right? So he has – he also has pagan shrines. He also has idolatry in his land. He also has not listened to the advice of the prophets. And so <clears throat> when he goes on and on and – uh he condemns uh, the people in Israel, and he says so. For instance, in verse ten of Second uh, Chronicles thirteen, uh, but as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken Him. He's lying, right? So he's speaking half truths. He says he uh, he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth, so to speak. Where he, on one hand, he's saying something that's true about Israel, about his neighbor, but he's not saying what's true about himself. And uh, additionally, we talked about this concept of the brothers war, right? That this is not how things should be. So they, they end up going to war with, uh, and this is going to be a common theme throughout the rest of the time of Israel, as we already know from talking about Israel's kings. But they're going to go to war with Israel, with the northern kingdom. The northern and southern kingdoms are going to war against each other. And... Um, God does give the victory in this instance to Judah. However, uh, that doesn't excuse Abijam's, uh, what we're going to talk about as Pharisaism. So whenever they, Judah takes over Bethel after this war, um, and I think that's kind of where we left off last last week. Judah take uh, they capture Bethel. Judah defeats Israel, and Bethel is where one of the golden calves is. Well, what should what should Abijam do whenever they capture the place with this? They should destroy. The, yeah, they should destroy it. They don't. He doesn't destroy it, right? So it's not going to be until. Um, King Josiah, who's one of the good kings of Judah, 300 years later, that the golden calf is destroyed. So, and and we don't read that until uh, we get to King Josiah. But um, they take over Bethel, but then the the golden calf is still is still there and still being worshipped. So Abijam is not 
uh, who he appears to be and his legacy. So you always you always find out in the texts what the legacy of the king is, if they were a good or a bad king. Um, and we found that out in First Kings 15 um, that Abijam remained a bad a bad king. He did not repent. So um, a couple applications with that, and then we'll move on to King Asa. So first of all, God does keep his promises, right? So despite the Phariseeism and the sins of Abijam, and Israel is also not um, – Innocent in in the in these sins, right? Both places are idolatrous. Despite that, and and both are going to ultimately be punished, right? Uh, both are going to end up in captivity: Israel to Assyria, and then later Judah to Babylon. God does keep this promise. God does give Judah the victory, and uh, He does continue to preserve this this line of Judah's kings. Um, and that is solely because of the providence of God, not because um, of Abijah actually doing anything worth saving, right, or preserving. But um, it is solely due to God's, to God's providence. And we're going to see that with, with Asa, uh, who's the next king, that whenever anything good or bad happens to a king, it's only because of God. Um, God makes that very, very clear. The prophets make that clear throughout the history of the divided kingdom, throughout the history of the whole Bible, for that matter, that that God's the one in control of these things. So uh, despite Abijah's sins... This promise that Judah is going to be the tribe of Judah is going to be preserved, and that there's going to be a line of kings uh, through which the Messiah comes. God does still keep that promise, um, and that's good for us to know because he it shows um, something we're going to talk a little bit about in the sermon today that God is a God of keeping promises. Whenever the Lord promises something, He doesn't turn back on it. He keeps His word, and uh, Paul makes this argument in Romans 15, which is what I'm preaching on today, that when Jesus came and was born as a uh, as a Jew, uh, ethnically, as a son of Abraham, at, and and came to minister to the sons of Israel, right, to the lost the lost sheep of the house of Israel, that was to Keep the promises that he made to the patriarchs, that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because we can see that Jesus did that, we know that God keeps his promises, and therefore look at these other promises he has made and how he's also going to keep those. So then Paul goes in to show these other promises from the Old Testament that uh, God is also going to be Lord of the Gentiles. And he's making an argument about the Gentile mission that um, basically that Jesus is also your Lord. 
because, uh, look, he's kept his promises. He went first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now um, he's also first to the Jew and then to the Greek. The, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of, of all. And so uh, this is an argument throughout Romans, but um, in Romans 15 he shows this. So anyway, the, the point is that God is a God who keeps promises. And so we can – anytime we see God keeping a promise – we, we remember the promises God makes to us, right? Um, for instance, that he's working all things together for the good of those who love him. Or that uh, he's going to clothe and feed us whenever we need clothing and food. Uh, that he's going to provide for us. Uh, any, that he's going to forgive our sins. That he's going to um, comfort us in our, in our sorrows. Uh, that he's going to give us hope in the midst of grief. Right? He gives us tons and tons of promises. Well, he keeps promises. He's a God who keeps promises. Okay. Um, the second thing that we can see here with Abijah is that uh, something that we've seen over and over again throughout the Old Testament is that God, as, as we think about the second Samuel 7 and we, as we think about uh, the future of Judah – and we know all the ups and downs it's going to take, good kings, bad kings, Babylonian captivity, return from captivity, all these things that um, God is working out together for good, uh, his purposes, even with sinful people. So this is uh, Genesis 50:20, way back in the Joseph narrative. Remember when the brothers of Joseph... Uh, come to him and Joseph could rightfully be very mm-hmm. upset at them and you know have them killed that they you know they left him for dead they sold him into slavery um, they were wicked and because of that Joseph suffered a lot of, a lot of things in his life he was thrown in jail twice and all sorts of things uh, but what does he say to them he says, what you meant for evil, God worked out for good. What you meant for evil, God worked out for good. And so uh, I heard it put this way recently that God draws straight with crooked lines, <laughs> right? And that's 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 the kings of both Israel and Judah. Uh, they're very, very crooked lines. Um, but God throughout, if you look at the scope of Bible history, God ends up drawing straight with them, right? God works works it out to bring about the Christ eventually. Um, and give us all these lessons along the way. And then the, the final thing uh, to learn from Abijah is um, to talk about a little bit about Pharisaism. I think that Abijah is a good example of a Pharisee or the sin of Pharisaism um, in that – well, a couple, a couple of ways. In, in that speech that he gives, uh, he is – so first of all, you have what Jesus warns about in Matthew 5, that he has a log in his own eye and is trying to take the speck out of his brother's eye. Right? He has a massive problem of sin in his own life. He's not listening to the prophets. He's not worshiping the Lord. He's got pagan shrines everywhere. Um, re- remember, his, uh, his mother is... Uh, Maka, the rebellious um, queen, and who uh, 
is the granddaughter of Absalom and was Rehoboam's favorite wife of his many wives. And uh, he's in this rebellious line. He's got this massive problem of sin in his own life. And then he's looking up at Israel and saying, oh, look, you got you got your problems up there. Look how good we are. Look how perfect you know we are. We're uh, because we have this name. We have this name of David. Right. We're the line of David. I'm the I'm the descendant of David. Um, and he's completely ignoring his own problem. And so that's uh, the log in the eye and the speck trying to take out the speck in his brother's eye, which is one of the problems of Phariseeism. The other problem with Phariseeism or the other part of the sin of Phariseeism is Phariseeism is basically when – it's not basically when. It is when someone has a system of rules that if they follow those rules, they can get to heaven without Jesus. That's what Phariseeism is, um, and that takes many forms. So for the literal Pharisees in the New Testament – that has to do with certain religious rituals um, and the sacrificial system and, and so on and so forth. And uh, the, the some of the ritual laws in the Old Testament. For Abijah, his system is similar to that in, it, in that it's being to that same – being part of that same line. And uh, following some of those same rules. So, uh, again, if you look at Second uh, Chronicles 13:10, um, but as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken Him. And notice what His definition of the Lord being their God and not forsaking Him is: is that the priests who minister to the Lord are the sons of Aaron, and the Levites attend to their duties. So the fact that the sacrificial system is going on in the temple is enough for Abijah to think that he's totally fine, right? He doesn't need to repent of his sins. He doesn't need to listen to the prophets. He doesn't need to uh, actually worship the Lord himself. He just needs the the Levites to keep doing what they're doing. And as long as they're doing that, then he's all good to go, right? That's his, that's his theory. Now, when we think about Phariseeism, we need to realize that our Phariseeism might not look exactly like that, right? So our Phariseeism can look a number of different ways. It can be like uh, belonging to a certain group. So sometimes I've seen this with, with Lutherans that as long as they're confirmed, right, it's like – that's like the ticket to heaven, right? <laughs> so, so, so people will, will say to me, um, yeah, so-and-so, my, my niece or, or – or granddaughter or whoever um, hasn't been to church in 20 years, but but they're confirmed. You know, they're 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 confirmed. They're Lutheran. Well, what does that even really mean? I mean, um, I mean the confirmation rite includes a vow that we would faithfully come to receive the Lord's supper, faithfully be part of the church, and never. Uh, neglect the faith uh, even even to the point of death <laughs> okay so um, at what point have has someone denied those confirmation vows <laughs> has someone gone against those right um, so we, we need to be careful not to fall into that kind of Phariseeism that oh 
I'm a son of Abraham, right? Well, what, what does Jesus say to the Pharisees whenever, whenever they say, we're sons of Abraham? We've never been enslaved to anyone. What are you talking about? We're, 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 the, we're the sons of Abraham. We're going to heaven. He says, you're of your father, the devil. <laughs> uh, if you were really sons of Abraham, you would know what I said in my word. That, that's what Jesus says. So those are harsh words. But um, So that's a certain kind of Pharisaism. I think our Pharisaism today is also different than the Pharisees' Pharisaism in that uh, our system of righteousness to get into heaven, and I'm, when I say our, I'm talking about kind of cultural Christianity, if you will. Um, our system of righteousness to get into heaven without needing Christ isn't based on religious rituals or fulfilling particular laws like the Pharisees were or like Abijah was focused on. Um, our system of righteousness is actually more uh, licentious than that in that um, we tend to think that um, we can get away. We don't really have to fulfill a lot of laws, right? That we can... Um, just be like a generally good person and and go to heaven. Um, I, I, I think about this with funerals because um, now now all the funerals i've I've done uh, here at the church, I have no doubt that the the people are in heaven, so don't don't take this the wrong way. but there's this old trope that I heard a couple times from from old older pastors uh, that said when whenever you preach a funeral sermon, you don't have to really worry about preaching the law because the law is right in front of everyone. You have you have death right there, which in a sense is true, but I think the problem today is that. At a funeral, in, in my experience, and and even not just at a funeral, but like um, talking to anyone about anyone's death. So whenever like anyone dies, um, and you're just and talking to people, everyone assumes that everyone's going to heaven. Like no one ever doubts that someone might not go to heaven anymore. Um, that's just my experience in our modern American culture. That uh, people aren't actually afraid of death in this way. Um, people are afraid of death because they're afraid of the suffering of death and the pain of death, and um, they want to keep living their lives on this earth. But they're not afraid of going to hell, <laughs> uh, which is why I'm generally afraid of death. Um, I don't think I, I mean I don't think I'm going to hell, but but I do, I do know it is a possibility, right? Like I I could I could fall into sin um, and and not repent, and uh, like I I know people I know people who have died who I'm pretty sure are not in heaven, and everyone else around me is like, oh, they're in a better place now, and I'm like, I don't know if they are. <laughs> um, so anyway, but that. That, that I think that's Phariseeism. So I the um, I think the Phariseeism is this kind of licentiousness that like 
we don't believe that that this is a serious thing, right? That that God actually does have wrath on on unrepentant sin, and um, that we're all everyone's kind of worked it out with God in their own way, um, and that you know everyone's kind of made a deal with God somehow, and it, it's all going to be fine. It's all going to work out. Right? Um, if someone is a good enough person, it's it's fine. You know, maybe maybe Jeffrey Dahmer's going to hell or something like that, right? But but everyone else is basically going to heaven. Um, I think that's Pharisaism because Pharise- again, Pharisaism is having a system of righteousness where you don't need Jesus and you still get to heaven. Um, so anyway, uh, Abijam's system of righteousness had to do with being of the line of David, but we have our own systems of righteousness. All right. Uh, but up, um, what time is it? 9.48. All right. We'll move on. We'll just start uh, King Asa. So Asa is a lot nicer of a story than um, Abraham. And uh, his, his story continues basically right after um, Abijam. So 1 Kings... 15, uh, 10 through 10 through 24 and 2 Chronicles and his story is kind of long uh, 14 through 16 so 1 Kings again is more of a summary and 2 Chronicles has more detail so we're, we're actually just going to jump into 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 14, and uh, we'll just uh, start with the first eight verses, and that's that's probably what we'll get through today here. But um, I'll just I'll just read these to start with. Uh, so Abijah rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. Then Asa his son reigned in his place. In his days, the land was quiet for ten years. So we have. Um, War with Abijah, and then we're going to get peace with Asa. And as you'll see, Asa is one of the few good kings. So, so we have a nice uh, kind of reprieve from all the evil kings of Israel and Judah. And we have King Asa now. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. So that's his legacy, right? So again, remember I said that you always get the legacy of the king whether or not he was repentant and a good king or evil and he he's a good king um he has his struggles later on in his life that we'll read about but he's a good king and why is he a good king for he removed the altars of the foreign gods of the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images he commanded judah to seek the lord god of their fathers and to observe the law and commandment He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was quiet under him. And he built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest. He had no war in those years because the Lord had given him rest. Therefore he said to Judah, let us build these cities and make walls around them and towers and gates and bars while the land is yet before us because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. And Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah who carried shields and spears. From Benjamin, 280,000 men who carried shields and drew bows. 
and they were mighty men of valor. Okay, so the first thing he did is uh, the most important thing, which is he removed the idolatry. He removed all the all the shrines uh, from the land. He removed all the pillars and the high places and the um, the wicked temples and the uh, so on and so forth. Hold on, so the, the wooden images. It says he did not remove the high places, although he did not remove the high places, which doesn't make sense to me. What verse is that? Fourteen. Fourteen? Yes. Sir. Verse fourteen. Um, yes. Sir. So it said he, uh, his grand, his, let's see, he even deposed his grandmother, Makai. How do you pronounce that? From her Maka. position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive Azariah pole. Azariah, Azariah Asherah. cut the pole down and burned it in the kingdom valley, although he did not remove the high places. Are you in chapter 2? Oh, I'm in 1 Kings. Am I the wrong one? Yeah, oh, you're in 1 Kings. We're in 2 Chronicles oh. 14. Okay. Sorry. No, you're good. 2 okay. right. Chronicles 14. Uh, 14, yeah. But, so, okay. Well, why would it say that, though, in Kings? Because I guess at the time. Oh, uh, yeah. It was probably talking about Alpha John. No, it's an Asher. It's an Asher. Cut the pole down and burn it in Kingdom Valley, although he did not remove the high places. And then it said, Asher's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. Mm-hmm. Is that Azariah, not Asa? ASA. This we're doing ASA. Asa. Okay, so yeah, it's talking about the high places in Israel, not in Judah. So, so Asa removed the high places throughout Judah, but not. Uh, he he wasn't able um, he didn't he didn't conquer reconquer Israel he he was attempting to to solve problems in Israel too but he wasn't able to um, so we'll get to that later but um, you can get a more detailed version of that in Second Chronicles 15 which is the next chapter we'll get to and um, around verse 16 and. Uh, that, that verse, this is how that reads, uh, verse 16 and 17. He also removed Maka, the mother of Asa, uh, the king, from being queen mother because she had an obscene image of Asherah, and Asa cut down her obscene image, then crushed it and burned it by the brook Kidron. But the high places were not removed from Israel. <coughs> so it's uh, the high places in the northern kingdom that he wasn't able to remove. Yep. All right. So back to verse uh, to chapter 14 in Second Chronicles. Then um, he removed. He went on this uh, um, revival, if you will, or reform, where he uh, had to go throughout the land and remove all these these images. And uh, he did that. And remember, um, right worship is one of the needs for a good king. Um, and so he does that. The other thing he does is he also is wise. So notice. Um, when he says, look, there's basically he says there's peace in the land. And so this is the time 
to build, uh, to build fortified cities, to put up gates and bars, right? Because he knows that there's going to be war coming. Um, there was war before him. Uh, he knows how things are going in Israel. And uh, he can also see Assyria and Egypt. and they, I mean, there's constantly war in this place and time in history. Um, so he, when God gives him peace, he's very wise. And he uh, builds, builds up walls and builds up an army, right? So uh, 580,000 men in total, right? Um, 300,000 from Judah and 280,000 from, from Benjamin. Um, so... Uh, he, he uses his wisdom in this in this time of prosperity. Now, the application of this is um, what 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 I would say for for our um, what I want to talk about is is uh, our place in time in history and um, the nature of a a Christian country. So um, you, you've probably heard it said before that, you know, America used to be a Christian nation and maybe now it's not, or some people still think it is, or, 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 or and so on and so forth. There's, there's always kind of a debate about whether or not America ever was or is or is ever going to be a Christian nation. But um, what I, the first thing I want to say is that striving to be a Christian nation is good. <laughs> so... I, I don't understand Christians who think that we should be very like pluralistic in our society or Christians who think that we should have like a complete neutrality towards religion um, in our society because God made the world, right? If we believe God, the true God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the God who we confess to be God, if we believe he made the world – and made it to work in a certain way, we should want uh, our society to conform to his laws, right? And for people not to worship false gods. Because what happens when people worship false gods? Well, they do false things that are bad for society. So, um, for instance, the Asherah, who Makkah worships, um, command child sacrifice, in the Canaanite religion. Well, false religions today also command uh, evil and wicked things. And there's there's not such a thing. Ever, you know, people always talk about um, the secular world being neutral, or sec, use the term secular as in like, you know, not religious, um, being kind of this neutral area. Well, the things are not actually neutral, right? Abortion is not neutral. So if um, if the secular world says, well, abortion is fine because that's within our, our morality, then um, we don't have a leg to stand on if we say that um, – if we're not able to make religious claims. If we're – if all we can say is, well um, – yeah, we just live in a uh, we live in a secular world and we live in a neutral kind of neutral place. And I don't think abortion is good, but if other people do, I guess they must be allowed to do it because um, separation, of church and state. separation of church and state or whatever. Uh, that's not a place I want to live. 
right? And notice that um, – so, so I think having a Christian nation is good, and that's not the same as a theocracy. Um, the, a theocracy is when someone like me, a, a priest or a religious leader, um, is also in charge of the state. And that's not what we're advocating. Um, I, king Asa is not a priest. He's a king. But he believes in God. And because he believes in God, he knocks down idols. And so that's the good work of a king. Um, so anyway, that's that, that's why I wanted to say about the application of his re- revival in the land of Judah is that he's being a good king because he's being a Christian king. And Christian leaders should act on the basis of their Christianity. Um, and that and that's a good thing. Like that's what we should strive for. Uh, because I think we've for long for, for far too long of a time have suffered under this um, idea that we can have this kind of neutral world uh, that's a religious and that is somehow not going to fall into sin. And then uh, Christians want to decry the evils of the world, um, but then they say, well we can't use we can't use the Bible to argue because um, that would be, that would be bringing religion into it. Well, everything is religious. Everyone has a religion. And um, I think we need to recognize that. Anyway, we, we'll pick that up next week. I know it's time. Any uh, questions or comments on that? Yeah, Chad? Or are you just... No, I'm just... You're, you're just wiggling your fingers. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm fidgety. I'm sorry. I'm just... Okay. All right, let's uh, end in a word of prayer. (laughs) Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to be our prophet, priest, and king. Uh, We pray that he would rule in our hearts and minds, especially this Advent as we consider his coming to us. And we pray that you would come to us again today in word and sacrament, that we may know you and that we may be strengthened in the true faith. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.